Welcome to Career Tools. Today's topic, the second rule of assisting, anticipate. Part one. Here we go. We did a manager tools cast, I guess, Jesus, a long time ago about, from a manager's perspective, how to use the administrative assistant much more yeah, effectively. Yeah, the effective, the effective executive and the efficient administrator, efficient assistant. Yeah. It's interesting. We've had as many assistants come and tell us how useful that was to them as we have executives, which is yeah. wonderful. So here's, so here's another opportunity. Yeah, but remember, that was for managers, right? For the person who was the boss. But really, if people are listening right now and think this is only for assistants, they're mistaken. A chief of staff, um, there are all kinds of aides at senior level, a junior person mm. being mm-hmm. put at senior level because of a, you know, he's a high potential or she's a high potential person. And so they get a two-year or an 18-month stint with a division chief or something like that. And you essentially become the bag man or the right-hand person of a CEO or division president as part of a way to expose you to the organization. Not unusual for people with unique credentials or somebody who was recruited into a high potential program. And too many of those people who have fabulous credentials and are absolutely smart enough to potentially go to that senior level, look down on the details of the job and don't realize they're supposed to be a really good assistant. They're supposed to be a great bag man. They're supposed to think ahead. They're supposed to arrange all that stuff. They're they're there to learn about the strategy conversations, but they're not there in the first month to contribute to strategy. They're there to, to have it rub off on them and to do a great job of taking care of the senior person. And too many High potential people fail in those roles because they believe it's beneath them. And yet, you know, we know executive assistants who make quarter of a million dollars a year and are indispensable. And there are two or three of them for CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies. I can see where this would apply to interns as well in some situations. Yeah, look, even if you're an assistant bank manager as opposed to assistant to the bank manager, a la the office, Dwight Schrute, you know, you I mean if you assist someone who is in a unique role and your job is to assist them rather than having completely separate duties, then you have to be able to anticipate. You have to – and part of the anticipation is looking up beyond today. It's being able to to keep your gaze to go from 30,000 feet down to zero feet and back up to 15 and then 30 and then back down to 10 and then to zero. And too many people don't do that. They get involved in their own projects and they forget their job is to assist the leader, the organizational leader or the titular leader, in terms of them getting what they want out of the organization. We use the word anticipate reminds me a lot about, uh, for those of you who've been listening a long time, know that I'm a pilot, right? So I'm a private pilot. And one of the things they talk about is doing, you know, environmental, uh, situational awareness, right? And part of it is understanding what's going around you, but not being so much into flying the plane that you're not aware of the environment around you. And part of this is just, you have you have your normal, your, kind of your job responsibilities, but part of this is just lifting your he- head up enough and being aware of what's going on and identifying opportunities to provide value that you might not otherwise, if you're not paying attention. Yeah, I, I remember years ago, that that sense of context, that sense of paying attention was lost on me when when somebody suggested I could start using RSS feeds 
to keep track of more things because I was a voracious reader and RSS feeds would allow me quickly to get access to more stuff. And they were right. I loved it. But I literally created, this is my mistake, I saw the RSS feed as a task to be done and I needed to go through my RSS feed every day and look for stuff. But I literally began to see it as a task to be done in terms of getting through the feed, not think about how this information mm. might be contextually interesting or how it might change the market or how it might affect us or how we might use it or what the value of that is or what does that mean? But literally just going through and checking off, I read that, I read that, I read that, I read that. And I've told you before, I think I've said it on the air several times that I'm not a good predictor of what technology will work or not work. When the first iPods came out, I said, I'm, I'm not going to have one. I got radio in the car. <laughs> Right. And that's part of becoming effective in an organization is being able to anticipate, to be able to see the future. We've said before that executives job is to turn the uncertainty of the external world to sense the external world and make sense of it, make, turn it into certainty in terms of plans, objectives and guidelines uh, and tasks for the organization because that certainty, the need to do certain things in certain ways, you believe as the executive will allow you to attack, if you'll pardon that word, the uncertainty of the external world. People say, you know, the, the really great people who talk about the future and anticipating what's going to come next always say, invent it yourself, right? You don't just wait for somebody out for something to happen to you because nothing really does happen to you other than it affects you because of some, maybe somebody else means for it to affect you, but a lot of times they don't. Your competitors are trying to affect their customers and that has an indirect effect on you. But executives have to anticipate. They have to decide what the future might be and then say, I believe this is the best future for us. Let's do these certain actions to create that future. Same thing with being an assistant to someone. You have to anticipate. You have to look ahead and think what might happen here, not just here are the 30 things that are going to go on today, but what might happen here? What are the pluses and minuses? What potentially could be the one standard deviation from the mean difference here? And how can I make sure that the person I'm supporting is ready for that? And over and over and over again, I found in my career, now that's this is not what this cast is about, but it's an interesting aside. The people who are most egotistical and least humble are least willing to subordinate themselves. Uh, the people who are most confident and, and that confidence breeds a humility in terms of I, I know what I don't know, are also totally willing to be a great number two. And yeah, you need to be want to be a number one to be a great number one, but you can be a great number two and assist someone and make it not about you so that the person who's in the lead, who has to make the tough decisions, gets the best information, has the best support, and done then does, in fact, make the right and best decisions. Right. And so specifically what we're talking about here is the idea that ordinary performers, you know, they turn through the work in front of them, right? That's that's not enough. The great performers, on the other hand, what they do is they pick their eyes up off the immediate actions they have on their right. list, yep. right? And they look forward to what's about to happen, right? And that's right. the way they head off problems, ensure that everyone is able to make the most out of their time and energy. And in the case of an assistant, it's your job is to make the person you're assisting as effective as possible. And you do that by anticipating their needs or the needs of the organization. Yeah. And I think people will be thrown off with the idea of anticipating because they're like, well, gee, I don't, you know, I can't predict the future. I can't think about the future. Well, anticipating is not that. It is looking to the future, doing scenario planning. What ifs? What could happen here? What could happen there? And in fact, a lot of times people say, Mark, how is it that you're able to 
come up with exactly the right thing to say. I said, well, I, I think one of the skills I have over after years and years and years of selling, marketing, persuading, leading, managing is I'm really good at scenario planning a given conversation. When I go into a conversation with Mike or with Wendy or with a client, I say, okay, I think I'll say this. Ooh, and then immediately go, oh, nope, this person won't like that. Retract that. Let me try this. That would be better, but not good. And so you can literally build the conversation exactly the way you want by scenario planning it, contextually thinking about what's going to happen. That's anticipating that conversation. You can do it. It's not guessing at what might happen and hoping that your first guess is right. It's working through the possibilities and thinking enough about the future to go, with only 1% change in effort here, I save 10% later. That's leverage. That's real leverage. A good example is when, when we talk about delegating, we use the model, the the analogy or the the visual representation that Stephen Covey, Covey uses in, in the book Seven Habits. He does the the, the big rocks uh, analogy where he he describes time as a vase which is basically fixed, and th- there are stones and pebbles and grains of sand to go into the vase. If you fill the vase with the sand first, which is what a lot of us do trying to keep up with emails and doing C-level tasks because it makes us feel good. We get a little jolt of joy and, and, and satisfaction. One less thing to do today while, in fact, the big 900-pound gorilla is sitting on your desk not getting done. If you fill the vase with sand first, it's, you're going to have a harder time filling, filling it in with the stones. The stones won't actually go in. You'll have done the wrong thing. The stones represent the major priorities, the big things that we need to be working on. And if you're a leader, it's your job to worry about the stones. And if you're assisting someone else, and it doesn't, your assistant doesn't have to be in your title to do that. If you're assisting someone else, your role is to pick up the sand so there's more room for the big stones, the big rocks in that vase that the, for the person of the person whom, whom you're assisting. Look, while expenses and and managing cash levels or ensuring production space somewhere is available may not be key priorities for a particular executive or a bank manager or project manager, if they're not done, they're in danger of causing a slippery surface. Essentially, a surface is covered with the sand of the stuff that didn't get done. And the job of the assistant is to clear the surface and to be willing to take the second most or fourth most or tenth most important thing that must be done, but is not the most important thing so that the leader, the executive, maybe even just the manager can, in fact, worry about the most important thing. There's an old saying, I know we've said it before, Mike, that the CEO's job is to do the job that only the CEO can do. If the CEO and the EVP can both do it, then the EVP should do it. That's just managerial economics 101 at the top of the food chain. And what all this means is that in order to do it, the assistant needs to be able to anticipate. And it's not as fuzzy as you think. It's the willingness to see the future and ask yourself what might happen under various circumstances. This ability to see around corners. You'll read about this in Harvard Business Review a lot. He or she was able to see around corners. Folks, if you learn that now about small things, it'll be easier for you to invent the future you want for your division or your company because you will predict, hey, if we go to this client with that, that won't work. Let's go back. Let's redo this. Let's talk about the doing this differently. That's seeing around corners. People say, wow, he's really able to predict stuff that I wouldn't be able to predict. He's not actually predicting it. He's thinking through the possible scenarios and increasing the chances that the scenario he wants to have as an outcome actually comes true. And look, it's not hard. We only have two simple recommendations to do it, although the second one is, is, is we'll go into a little bit of detail. Uh, and the two things we recommend is 
you got to take 15 minutes a day to think through the potential about what's going to happen that day and potentially up further past that. And the second thing you need to do is use a checklist. You've got to keep track of this stuff. There's too many things going on. Uh, if your life is filled with sand, the details that are sand, you'll start this, the sand will start falling on the floor and it only takes one grain of sand, you know, for want of a shoe, the battle is lost. Our first one, uh, using 15 minutes a day. I mean, I think that's, that's really just part of making this a habit, right? Making yeah, anticipated it's just a structured activity. Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying that professionalism, Mike? Are you saying that <laughs> manager tools and career tools and, and the life of a professional is about discipline? It's about habitual behaviors? I think we just sent out an email, uh, Things I Think I Think, with a quote in there from uh, Aristotle, which says, excellence is nothing more than a sustained habit. It's just discipline. Yeah, there you go. Now, it'd be more sexy and exciting if we could sell it as something other than that. But it's yeah. not, right? I mean, it's, it's just, it's boring, repetitive, unsexy stuff, right? Yeah. For yeah. both management and for <laughs> yeah. professionalism. Yeah. If something is important, it needs to be prioritized, right? Anticipating is important in terms of being able to think about the future in order to reduce the chances for failure. And that's why it's the second rule of assisting after knowing your priorities. You spend 15 minutes. We recommend you spend 15 minutes in the first hour of your day. It doesn't have to be the very first 15 minutes, but in the first hour of your day, going through the steps we're going to describe in order to anticipate what needs to be done and how you can help. Now, if you don't spend time every day going through this routine, you're going to miss something you should have caught. If you do it every day, when you miss something one day, you'll pick it up the next. This is, again, discipline. It's habitual. It's, it's the path to excellence, which is one step at a, at, at a time. It's, I know it's really cheesy and corny, but by the mile it's a trial, by the art it's hard, and by the inch it's a cinch. You're going to miss things. There's no way around it when you're thinking about today and this week and this month. But having a routine of checking every day, you're going to get better at checking. It's going to create a natural backstop and that little voice in your head saying there's something wrong, there's something wrong, there's something wrong. The habit of checking every day will make you better at knowing what it is that's wrong. I know a lot of people who think that there are some folks out there who are just very good at thinking ahead and, and that some people are not good at thinking ahead. But really, according to the brain science, it's really not true. The fact is, there are some people who haven't yet developed the skill, just like there are some people the first time you pick up a golf club, you're not going to be terribly good at, at striking the ball. But how do you get good at it? You hit the ball a bunch of times and you pay attention to what happens and then you change your swing because of that. I know I've mentioned it before, but Lee Trevino, who's a, an American golfer, just a, a wonderful person. I've met him a couple of times and a very lively, personable person did a commercial for, I want to say Bridgestone golf balls a few years ago, and he was hitting golf balls out of a sand trap next to, next to green. And he was saying how the ball really, the feel and spin of it made him able to put the ball really, really close. And he showed him hitting balls out of a trap and you could see out of a bunker and you could see all these balls really close to the hole. There were so many that he could never get one close to the hole again. And he's, he's chipping balls and seeing how good it feels. And then finally, at the very end of the commercial, he looks at the thing and looks at the camera and says, and it wouldn't hurt if you th hit three or 500 practice balls every day too, right? You know, every pro golfer, just about when they finish a round on the pro tour, they go out and hit more balls. You know, there are pro golfers. Uh, Tiger Woods had lights installed at his driving range so he could get up before everybody else and hit balls at four in the morning. 
it's just a habit. It is the discipline of excellence. Right. But they didn't always have the habit, right? I mean, it, and yeah, one that's right. in their career, when they were beginning, they had to force themselves to get up every morning, get up early and go practice or to go out every go afternoon, practice, yep. right? Whether it was hot or cold, it didn't matter. They forced themselves to do it. And after a period of time, it became a habit. But in the beginning, you just don't create habits overnight, right? So you force yourself. That's where the discipline comes yeah. in. I remember when I hired Wendy, when we hired Wendy and she said, look, I, I, I talked to her about big company versus small company. She says, look, I know what small companies are. If what you want me to do, if, if I have to stuff envelopes here in order to help manager tools reach people the way they reach me and career tools the way you guys helped me, I will stuff envelopes. Right. And yet there are some people who say, well, I don't want to do the, the, the small things. Um, there's a quote by John Gardner. I, I, I want to say, I'm going to get it wrong. The society which shuns excellence in philosophy because it, it is an exalted activity and the society which scorns excellence in plumbing because it is a lowly activity are both doomed to fail. Neither their theories nor their pipes will hold water. I'm sure I've mangled it, but but basically, you know, right? Just just because something is lowly, just because you're picking up sand and somebody else can get credit for the credit for the big big rocks, in order to learn the discipline of picking up sand and small rocks and medium rocks and large rocks, you have to go through the process of learning it, right? I mean, you and I learning how to march the first day at West Point. It sounds very pedestrian. It's not very sexy. It's not inventing a new web app, and yet we make all these jokes about web. We we talk all about how these companies are doing these fabulous web apps. And you watch the movie Social Network about Facebook. And what were they doing? They were writing code. They were wired in at a laptop somewhere writing code. And all their friends are drinking beer and jumping in the pool. And somebody is writing code. And writing code doesn't feel sexy. You might be inspired for a minute, but you got to get the syntax right, right? If when you produce code, there are all kinds of bugs and it's really slow, that's not good code. And people don't care whether or not it was fun for you. What they want is an outcome that delivers what they want. Sometimes it's just plain and simple hard work. How many software development projects have you seen in your organizations over the years, Mike, that in the end it was a death march and somebody made it happen? Somebody did the hard yeah. work and stayed up three or four nights in a row and then wanted right. to go home for a week because I couldn't think anymore. That's not exciting. That's not fun. Now, big splashy launch. There's a lot of excitement at the end of the project, but – like, I'm not a woman. I'm glad my wife is not listening right now because she'd hit me. So I'm going to make a comparison to giving birth. But there's so much pain <laughs> involved in giving birth that you got to wonder, like, how could you possibly love the child that caused that much pain? The, the fact yeah. of the matter is the love is so great that it erases the pain. And those death marches, right, it seems sexy and exciting at the end. But not during it. At the, it's only yeah. it's like giving birth. You gave birth to this project, and you just you forget about all the pain. <laughs> yeah, I remember a Wall Street banker. Okay, nobody shared that with my wife. Please. Yeah, dude. Everybody, please remember. Mike was the one that said what he what was just yeah, said. I exactly. did not. Sorry, yeah, I know you're always mad at me for stuff I say, but I'm sorry to my, all women listening. Yeah, but yeah. Wall Street, right? I mean, I remember guys telling me I, I've been here for like three weeks, or you know, that was three months ago, and we got the deal, and it was three weeks, and my spouse hated me, and I said, "What'd you get for it?" And he shows me a tombstone. I'm like, "Oh God, you know, <laughs> a lucite tombstone." I'm like, wow. He says, "Yeah, it was pretty cool at the time, but now I'm back doing something else." So it is a discipline, okay? And you can develop the discipline. It can become a habit, okay? Now, look, in step two, we're going to give you a checklist of things to consider. 
And what we're going to want you to do is spend your 15 minutes considering that checklist against three different timelines. What's happening today, what's happening this week, and what's happening this month. Simple as that, right? In order to do this, you're going to need access to the calendar of the person who's your principal. Um, generally, that would be if you're an assistant, obviously, it's the person you're an assistant to. And you need access to the calendars of the members of your team. Now, look, there are people who you could make this a philosophical question. People think their, their calendars are private. The fact is they're not. Your time when you're being paid for, for your time, is the company's time. And they're entitled to know what you're doing with it. And if you're a manager right now listening to Mike and I, and uh, you're smart enough to have subscribed to Career Tools, and you think you should be managing your own calendar, and you have an assistant, and you don't want anybody else touching your calendar, I know there's a part in the Bible that says we're not supposed to call people fools, but that's a foolish thing to do. It really is. You are essentially being penny wise and pound foolish. Ooh, there I, that's a pun. The company's entitled to know. The more people know about your calendar, the easier it will be for them to make decisions when you're not around. Now, look, we're not suggesting for the assistant that you should have an argument with your boss about whether or not it's possible, whether or not you should have access. Support the people who allow you access to their calendars most effectively and do your best for the people who not and develop relationships such that when you have a good enough relationship, say, look, it would really help me if I could see your calendar because that way I could assist you more with the things you're doing. The benefits will become apparent to you over time, particularly if you develop the relationships. Good. Okay. So, so the, it's just those three timelines, the, the three timelines of day, week, month, that's all. And, and you go through that maybe in the first five minutes you do a day, the next five minutes you do a week, and the next five minutes you do a month. And the great thing is about doing week and month, when you finally come to the day, you've thought about that day 10, 15, 20, 30 times already, and you are contextually wired in, to use a social network phrase. Good. Okay. So now you're doing the review 15 minutes every week, but let's, t- let's talk about some more specific guidance in terms of what to consider during those 15 minutes. And, and the best way to do that is you know, if you want to operationalize something, create a checklist. And so we're going to yeah. give you a checklist, right? Then the last couple of years, checklists have become a lot more in vogue. Doctors learned them from pilots and, and other people in high risk situations. And uh, checklists aren't good in all things, but they're good in a lot more things than most people realize. Everybody wants to make things art, which, which belies the idea of a checklist. But the fact is the way you get to art is first you master the science. And that's what manager tools and career tools are about. It's about making the basics and the advanced basics even a science so you can do them in your sleep so that you're so good at the things so that you're so unconsciously competent, then you're standing on a tall enough platform to create art, to be artistic, to make decisions that are not perhaps in the norm, but create great outcomes because you were confident that you understood the science and therefore the leap you were making really wasn't as big a leap as other people thought it was. That's what really high level effectiveness is. It's art on top of science. It is not speed just for speed's sake. It's not fabulous insights. Yes, there are 20 year olds who have fabulous insights, folks, but there are a lot more 50 year olds that have fabulous insights than there are 20 year olds, even in the technological world we live in. And I don't pick 50 because I'm 50. The fact is, the more science you have, not talking about being so geeked out that you're not willing to consider ignoring a rule, but the more you know the rules, the more you understand the rationale for them, the more you're willing to break a rule in order to get to art as opposed to just science. Thanks, everyone. That's it for today. Hope to see you back here again next week. In the meantime, have a great one. So long.